Hi everyone, my name is Tori, and I welcome you to a very special episode of Make Mental Matter. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Sarah Lada, who is a licensed clinical psychologist, and Dr. Sarah Walsh, who is a psychiatric nurse practitioner. They both currently work at a secure mental health unit, which is in a prison setting, and I'm able to discuss with them because I actually had a rotation with them, and quite frankly, it was amazing, and I really think people should hear what they have to say. I also want to point out that I'm going to actually be separating their interviews instead of combining them because they both share unique qualities in the roles that they hold. So I'll let them do the explaining and what they do and exactly how they help our inmates in prison when they have a mental health condition. So as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, my role is to diagnose and treat psychiatric illness. The primary way that I do that is with medication. So my focus is really on psychotropic medications in this setting, although I think it's important to always have good therapeutic interactions with your clients, regardless of whether or not you're prescribing a medication. Dr. Walsh also has vast experience uh, in a clinical setting and just being a nurse in general. And she not only deals with the secure mental health unit, but she also is available for sessions for the general population of the prison as well. So she is able to complete a wide variety of tasks throughout her job. One of the best pieces of advice I've gotten from my experience at the prison was that you treat the entire patient as a whole, not just the illness. So when I, what I mean by that is I'm not just saying, oh, they are diagnosed with depression and therefore I'm going to give a specific medication, right? I'm going to look at the whole patient. So what are their specific symptoms that they're struggling with? What medical problems do they have? What sort of barriers do they have in terms of accessing medication? So medications, a psychotropic medications are typically only available um, by what we call pill line in prison. So uh, a healthcare provider passes that to the individual. They aren't able to kind of keep it on their person. So are they going to be able and willing to get up in the morning and come to an early pill line to get their medication? I'm also taking a look at what will be tolerable for that person, right? I know some individuals uh, may struggle more with side effects and others have a higher threshold for looking past some minor discomforts for the benefit of medication. Of course, I'm looking at their family history. Is there any family history of mental illness? If so, were any family members successfully treated with a particular medication? There's a lot of good evidence to support that if you have a first-generation family member who's had success on a medication, that patient will likely have success on that as well. As Dr. Walsh has emphasized, yes, we pay attention to the diagnosis, but The whole patient, including barriers, specific symptoms, past medical history, any medications that work, 
how motivated or competent this patient is to take care of themselves and also a family history. But something else that some providers can forget is to get their patient's input. So sometimes patients see commercials on television or they talk with friends and family who have had good or bad experiences with a particular medication. And you want to ask the patient, have they heard of this medication that you're thinking of? Do they have any preconceived ideas about that? What sort of education do they need regarding the medication? But I can tell you, if a patient firmly believes that a particular medication won't work for them because, you know, their friend tried it and hated it, there's really not a whole lot of point in putting them on it because their uh, likelihood of tolerating it or being willing to try it more than a few days is low. Being in corrections is very different than caring for a civilian in an outpatient setting. So I asked what things can impact her methods of treatment, and this is what she had to say. I think their lack of control over their environment and lack of family supports readily available to them are two major differences that I am dealing with in the correctional setting. It makes uh, oftentimes the patient much more reliant upon medications. Not only are medications important to the treatment of these inmates, but also the therapy and the programs that are provided when going into a mental health unit. Both Dr. Walsh and Dr. Lada both agreed that there are a varying degree of successes in this setting, small steps matter. And when you come into this unit, the inmates are given the opportunity to program, which allows them to move into a less secure setting. These programs include classes in either groups or individually that allow them to adjust their thinking. Essentially, it's different types of therapy, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, things like that. The team of providers face different challenges every day, but one thing remains constant. It all depends on the work that that inmate puts into it. In fact, Dr. Lada even stated that over 30 inmates who had been released since the completion of the program, whether it was to a less secure setting or to home even, those people have not engaged in further violent acts. So it is a voluntary program. Um, we don't make anybody come here. Um, that willingness does wax and wane a lot for our population. So we do a lot of uh, motivational work, motivational interviewing, um, trying to remind them of their goals of why they came here in the first place. There's definitely, as I shared before, a lot of individualized treatment and care offered in here. So um, really just trying to identify what those individual goals are, helping them have an appreciation when they are making progress on those goals and trying to motivate them to continue moving forward. There can be, not always, but there can be more hopelessness, more despair, less to look forward to, less connection to the external world that can feel very isolating for individuals. And these individuals often have a significant trauma background before they even come to prison. And they also have um, a lot of conditioning in regard to violence. And with those factors, inmates are at a much higher risk for an attempt or a completed suicide. However, Dr. Walsh notes that two types of inmates exist in regards to this topic. So some individuals who are really struggling may be hesitant to speak with psychology 
who coordinates suicide watch in prison because of stigma with other inmates. Um, you can become a target. It can make you very vulnerable. And unfortunately, there is a, a small segment of individuals who are incarcerated who struggle with antisocial behavior traits or antisocial personality disorder who sometimes weaponize um, suicide watch in order to get a need met. And the reason I bring that up is because it can do some unfortunate things like make staff jaded when inmates who are genuinely suicidal talk about being suicidal because um, staff worry, are they using this for secondary gain? And you may be wondering, what secondary gain do they have to gain from this? Well, if the one I see most commonly is if you really don't like your cellmate, going on suicide watch is a way to get out of your cell and get some alone time. Because unfortunately, in a prison setting, sometimes when individuals are endorsing these thoughts, people need to think, well, is there is this genuine? And that's unfortunate because, as I mentioned before, I do think that they have some really significant risk factors that increase the potential for suicide completion compared to individuals in the community. My conversation with Dr. Walsh and Dr. Lada then went into how discussing suicide went about in this setting specifically and what steps, if any, they had to follow for a suicide watch or just to help the person struggling. Definitely depends. There's certainly sometimes that we are the first to be informed either in an interview, um, as you had mentioned, or during an individual therapy session when we're talking about some other things and those feelings are shared. Um, other times, it is an inmate going to a correctional officer or a medical staff provider sharing that they're having those thoughts of suicide or self-harm. Um, in those cases, the staff member maintains constant visual uh, visualization of the inmate until psychologist is able to come down and do a more thorough, comprehensive um, suicide assessment, risk assessment to determine if if they're safe to go back to their cell or if we need to place them on something we call suicide watch. Um, just to ensure their safety until they are in a more stable place. So when we place somebody on suicide watch, 100%, the goal there is to maintain their safety. And we only do that if we you know, feel strongly that they're not going to be safe if you know, we send them back to their cell or um, you know, put them in another environment. So on suicide watch, we do limit their property, again, just to ensure they don't have immediate means to harm themselves. Uh, we do put um, a staff member observing them all the time, 24-7 while they're on watch, just to make sure that they're not engaging in self-harm or if they begin to engage in self-harm, that we can intervene immediately um, to get them the help and treatment that they need. Uh, we do try to limit length of time on suicide watch just because you're in this room with a limited amount of property. Um, it's not always the most comfortable. Uh, we continue to provide treatment to the individual while they're on watch, trying to address the, the concerns they have going on that have them feeling like there is no other option. And we will maintain them on suicide watch as long as, as necessary. But our ultimate goal is to instill in them some hope for the future, even if it's, you know, small or if it's, you know, hope just for next week. Okay, you know, let's take that kind of small goal and continue to build on that through continued treatment. Um, once they come off of watch as well. Because of their mental health status and programming requires attendance, I wondered if a crisis impacted their progress throughout the program. Suicide watch would play a role in their progress 
not in a punitive way, but simply acknowledging that the more times they're on suicide watch, the more concerned we need to be about their emotional well-being and overall stability. And so they are in a mental health unit for treatment and to increase stability and to decrease the potential for harm to self and others. So Obviously, if we're seeing uh, frequent suicide watch assessments occurring, that clues us in that there is still a concern for stability in regard to harm to self. And that might have us want to keep them in the program longer, but we would certainly be looking at what we could do to improve their progress in the program. It's not just like a delay without looking at a personalized treatment plan. My next interview question touched on if they think their policies, protocols, or anything about the program or Suicide Watch could be improved, but they both agreed that things have been working, this program is innovative, and it provides opportunities that only a select few of inmates can experience. I think that algorithms in general are really challenging in psychiatry because everyone is coming to the table with a unique set of circumstances. So, you know, we're really looking at each individual in a holistic way and tailoring not just their medication treatment, but also their psychiatric or their psychological treatment. There are some standard accomplishments that the patients will all need to do to progress. And that's just part of uh, showing that they're functional and adaptive enough to safely be around other people. But I think the program does a great job of individualizing a treatment plan. I think we've got a great team of providers um, who have unique sets of experiences and many, many years of experiences when we're all combined. And with the team, everyone, not just medical professionals, are involved in the inmates' care. Like one thing that we offer is specialty training, you know, for staff who are sitting on, who are observing the watch. So it's not just a person there observing. It's not a psychologist, but, you know, it's somebody trained in engaging them, you know, in some conversation, you know, maybe pulling for those pieces of hope that they can can share with the psychologist when we're coming in to to do our part, you know, of of the ongoing assessment. Um, So I think we are regularly kind of looking at at Suicide Watch and other procedures that we have in place here to make sure that we're not just blindly following, you know, something that's just kind of always been in place. To wrap up my interview with Dr. Walsh and Dr. Lada, I had asked them, what advice or what suggestions could you give to healthcare providers in general about caring for people with mental health issues or suicidal ideations? Here's what Dr. Walsh had to say. I think one of the challenges with with serious and severe mental illness is that we may never have a patient be completely symptom-free. But what we want to do is bring them to their best quality of life, their best maximum functioning with the aid of medications and using the least amount of medications possible to do that. So it's always this balance. How can we maximize function and minimize medications? We do know that most individuals who have a completed suicide have had contact with a healthcare provider within the past 30 days of their completed suicide, and it's not necessarily a mental health provider. So I think it's important that every mental, every um, healthcare provider be thinking about mental health. 
I think that sometimes, and I could be wrong, but sometimes healthcare providers are afraid to ask because they don't know what to do if they get a response of, yes, I'm feeling suicidal. And it's going to add stress to their day and time to their day. And so they're afraid to to sort of use a bad expression, open that can of worms. So what I would say to healthcare providers is this. It's important for everybody seeing patients to screen for suicide. And you don't need to be afraid of it because you have resources. So familiarize yourself with your resources and develop a plan for what you will do if someone says yes, so that it's quite simple if you do get a yes, because you could save somebody's life. So don't be afraid. You've got resources. If you're in a large healthcare system, you're going to have access to a psychiatry provider. Um, But just remember, it's just as simple as arranging someone's safe transport to an emergency room if they say they're suicidal and they have a plan. If they give you an answer like, no, but I'm not doing well, then again, know your resources, know the psychiatric contacts in your community, know your crisis lines, um, know the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. I used to Uh, When you work in the community with electronic health records, it's really easy on your patient discharge instructions to use like blow-ins that put the same information there. So I would just have standard crisis information locally and nationally that I would just have on every single discharge instruction. So you can do something that simple, but don't be afraid to ask because you won't, you worry, you won't know what to do if you get a positive response. Prepare for that in advance, have a plan. And then you can ask and it can go smoothly from there. Dr. Lada's goal overall is to see the inmates in the unit progress. However, it is these classes and the determination shown from the inmates and the staff that create success. Staffing and availability of including these resources are difficult today, but education about suicide prevention must not and cannot be ignored. Um, we offer a cognitive behavioral therapy for suicidality class. So anybody who has a history of suicidal behaviors, um, gestures, self-harm, we'll enroll in this course. And it is um, three months, but can be extended you know, longer, um, where we're talking about motives for suicide. What are the thought process that leads to suicide? We'll create what we call a safety plan. So these are my known triggers. These are my known um, resources. When I'm, or my, sorry, triggers, these are my warning signs then. Um, If I'm triggered by a certain memory, my warning sign is I don't sleep. I'm increasingly angry or depressed. Um, These are my resources, my coping skills. You know, I can try to listen to music. I can try to call a friend. um, I can talk to my psychologist. Those things don't work. You know, then we have like our, our next steps, you know, like try coping skills first, you know, let a staff member know. Um, sometimes we'll say request to go on suicide watch, you know, and when you have that inmate buy-in as well, like this is what I need right now. I can't keep myself safe. It's much, makes a much better therapeutic working relationship as well. Um, but I think training for staff and then kind of preventative, um, and call it training, but like psychoeducation for the inmates on warning signs for themselves, I think is really, um, I know I have found helpful in working with inmates as well as in speaking with staff because the the rate of suicide among correctional officers or law enforcement in general is significantly greater than that of the general population um, by the nature of work that that we do is is normalizing those feelings, is saying to a person like, it's okay to have these thoughts, like you're human. You know, it's what what do we do with them? 
Um, and then that leads into other conversations and whatnot. But I think it is a topic that a lot of people are uncomfortable broaching. Um, there is a myth out there that if we ask a person about suicide, that we're going to put that thought in their head. That is a myth. Um, I always tell people um, when I'm leading a training, if you're having concerns that a person may be thinking of suicide, 10 to 1, if you're getting that feeling, they already have. So you're not putting that thought in their head. And by you asking them about it, you're normalizing. You're saying like, that's okay for us to talk about this. And then being comfortable, even if it feels uncomfortable, but you know, being comfortable, having that difficult conversation about how they're doing um, and not being afraid to ask that question. Listeners, I hope you were able to pull some major themes from my interview. In case you didn't hear a few, build a rapport, have some empathy with these people. They are very, very fragile in this state. Always take these thoughts seriously. You should never assume they are a joke. Focus on the whole person. After all, we're human. And be okay with being uncomfortable in order to get to the bottom of an issue. After all, providers, we are here to care for our patient. We need to leave any biases aside. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode and special version of the podcast. I hope you keep listening and sharing with your friends and tune in for next episode. Thanks. Bye.